Hey fellow fraud fighters, I'm Jimmy Fong, CCO at Seon, and welcome to the Cat and Mouse podcast. Seon is fortunate to work with businesses such as the likes of Revolut, Nubank, and Patreon in the fight against fraud. But with this podcast, we want to provide a comfortable space for people to talk about the daily challenges, topics on the horizon, and ultimately give us all a better insight into the mindset of fraudsters. And with that, on with the show. So 2006, Operation Sterling. Let's start with that, Rob. Yeah, of course. So uh, we're just Jimmy and I were just talking off air about uh, London Fraud Forum and its inception, how it came about. And basically, Operation Sterling uh, was a Metropolitan Police's fraud prevention arm. And at that time, obviously, the uh, significance of 2006 was the Fraud Act being introduced. As some of you may or may not know, uh, that was off the back of the Jubilee line extension. So obviously my time at TFL linked with that. There was a two-year trial that collapsed because the judge said there wasn't the appropriate legislation to be able to pursue it. And that's when they introduced the Fraud Act. With that, the Met Police and Operation Sterling, who were the lead force at the time, introduced both regional and um, trade industry fraud for it. And so part of that, a trade industry that is still going now, tough telecommunications fraud for her. And the other I know about because of my time at TFL is profit prevention of fraud in travel. And with the regional fraud for her um, in London, uh, we were, weren't the first, but we were one of the first. We set up in 2006. Very fortunate to be a board member from that time. Um, sat on the board with uh, many other esteemed people and had the absolute fortune to take over as chair about seven years ago now. Um, and so I chair the London Fraud Forum. What is it? It's a private public uh, organisation, member organisation, bringing the public, private and third sector together to fight the fight against fraud, bribery and corruption. How do we do that? Education and awareness. So we put on webinars, seminars, and obviously very proud to be here and put on the odd podcast. Um, and then in addition to that, we have an annual conference. We send out... Um, we send out regular news bulletins like RSSV type things, keeping people abreast of current threats and trends. Uh, and it all accumulates in an annual fraud conference in October each year, which this year we just had at the Guildhall. Everyone said to me, oh, that's one of the best. That's the best. As I said, it can't be the best after everyone's been indoors for two years. I'm really struggling. But no, it was great. And I've got a lot of time for the fraud for her. Um, and through Alex Rothwell, who some of you might well know as the, um, was a Detective Chief Superintendent within the City of London Police. He asked me to help him set up a fraud forum in the Northwest because I'd never had one. Um, many thanks to Shifa Chowdhury from the police up there. We've got one up and running there. I then became aware that there were a couple of other Southwest and Eastern regions didn't have them. We're in the throes. The Southwest actually have their launch event next week. The Eastern are following shortly behind. Through a post I put on LinkedIn, someone contacted me and said, we've got nothing like this in Northern Ireland. Can you help me? I may add, that's all in my uh, spare time. But it's great fun doing the right thing to get people all together. Look, fraud now is the crime of choice, isn't it? We all know that. It is the crime of choice. They all say that I think it's something like 80, 85% of all crime now is fraud related, cyber related. And ultimately, that's why we need organisations like the Fraud Forums to come together and fight the fight. Bit old fashioned, but we're stronger together than we are trying to fight it in silos. And that's what the Fraud Forums are all about. That's amazing. Uh, we hear this um, similar concept from our side, from an online uh, fraud fighting point of view. Okay. You know, these fraudsters all around the world are are literally sharing ideas in real time. They're in Telegram groups together. They're passing information really easily. 
And there isn't really the counter of that from a fraud fighting point of view, no. at least online. I, I love that you guys are putting this in person. So what would you say were some of the takeaways from October's uh, get together kind of, you know, in the, in the post pandemic? Yeah, what were some of, of the takeaways that you guys discussed? Quite interesting. You mentioned the pandemic, Jimmy. I don't think any of us can ignore it. We all think we're through the worst of it in terms of uh, geographically, in terms of medically, but actually from a fraud perspective, we're still picking up the pieces and I think we'll continue for a while. Let's go back a bit and look at the pandemic and how it all started with regards to fraud. And we all remember PPE and everybody rushing, you name anybody in a back street, I'm sat here in Tottenham Court Road, there'd be a little office behind the back here somewhere and all of a sudden somebody could get you half a million pounds worth of PPE. Everybody could get PPE or could they? They purported to be able to get it, but unfortunately, as we all know, there was fraud within that. And let's be honest, there's many members of parliament haven't covered themselves in glory through that either. There was many companies, organizations set up. Um, I've dealt with a case um, to an extent, dealt with a case where a guy had won many contracts with the Department of Health to provide it. And then on his last one, unfortunately, the goods just never arrived. Didn't exist, never existed. Very, very sad. So yeah, so basically it started with PPE and then we got into furlough, didn't we? None of us had even heard of the word furlough, let alone furlough fraud. Um, government set up um, schemes to help people, obviously, in the workplace. I don't know if we've all seen in the press recently the Brewster case, Brewster recruitment, uh, where there's a clip of um, the uh, leading lady within Brewster recruitment on Zoom meeting with all of her staff saying, yes, you can all be furloughed, but don't expect any of you to be doing it. I'm sure you'll all be here. And it was just taken for granted, Jimmy. The whole lot was taken for granted. Then we obviously had the bounce back loans. And how many companies have had bounce back loans? How many people set up companies at Companies House as shell companies didn't really exist to claim up to £50,000 in bounce back loan? Will they ever pay that back? Can we ever recover that? HMRC, government, obviously the banks, everybody is working together to try and do this. But it's something I say about is that that's how the pandemic started. That's what we got out of the fraud forum. That's where it started. We can't forget that. How can we fight it? What can we do together? We've all got to work together. We can't expect to arrest our way out of this. We're all looking at the police all the time. And with all respect to them, they're not necessarily the strongest. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I take away from that, we can arrest our way out of this, oh, right? Exactly. Can, can you expand upon that? Yeah, of course, Jimmy. Look, how can we expect everyone to be prosecuted? We've just talked about, and it's described as the tsunami, the, the kind of volcano lava of fraud that is just rolling down our streets at the moment. Um, and it's only getting worse. And during the pandemic, obviously, everybody was sat at home and you were working on whether it be an iPad, a laptop, a mobile phone, whatever device you had, you could commit fraud in the comfort of your own home. So that's the reason that helped as well, obviously. Some organisations didn't necessarily have the most robust controls in place. They just got on with it during the first period of COVID. We all mobilised at home, didn't we? And unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily all the security in place. I heard we even had call centres working at home, taking personal details. You go back to the office environment, you work in a contact centre, you put all of your equipment, your phone, your pen, your paper, in a locker outside, you're not allowed to take it in. At home, who had control of that, who managed that, we'll never know. And ultimately, that's where it comes from. So we need to be stronger together. We can't expect the police to do it all. There's too much of it. We need to take responsibility ourselves as organisations, as I mentioned already, banks, HMRC, um, and obviously, uh, thankfully and hopefully, private consulting firms like us at BKFGM. And we need to do our work too, because we can't arrest our way over. We don't have the volume of police. You just talked about fraud and link crime online. 
the Met Police had uh, Operation Falcon, as we all know. And unfortunately, and it makes sense, we all understand it. A couple of years back, during obviously when stabbings and um, knifings, obviously, and the gun shooting and what have you around the capital increased dramatically. And the Mayor Khan um, obviously asked that we had more policing on the streets. Just to show you, and I understand it, fraud doesn't scream, it doesn't bleed, and it doesn't shout. So therefore, my analogy with it always is you look at the lady living in the street and the fact that a guy's been stabbed on the corner or there's a drug deal done or whatever it might be, I fully understand it, I get it. The police have to react to that. They have to be seen to be on the street. But the actual volume of crime and the amount of it at the moment is cyber and cyber fraud. But that lady doesn't interest whether the guy over the road's lost half a million quid to an investment scam or whatever it might be, because actually he had half a million quid to lose. I'm not interested. The poor guy in the corner didn't have anything to lose. He's been stabbed and killed. So that's why we ended up with that kind of, unfortunately, kind of like moving aside and getting out on the street and getting people facing from the police perspective. But we can't expect in the fraud world, we can't expect the police to arrest their way out of this. We really can't. Let's look at identity fraud as a prime example, something that come up many times during the Fraud Forum Conference. Um, and we just talked briefly about it, even in uh, the onboarding process of staff, the onboarding process of supply chain, whatever it might be, customers, is onboarding KYC, um, obviously you can know your customer, know your business, due diligence is vital to get the right people to ensure that you've carried out as many checks as you can and to obviously mitigate against those risks. But identity fraud, are the police really the best people to investigate it? Probably not. You as a victim, you report it to Action Fraud, which by the way, I'm a bit controversial. I don't actually boot Action Fraud into touch. I'm actually a supporter of it. We don't have anything else. I think it's great. And I, you already guess I'm a man of analogies. I love Action Fraud for what it does. Yes, okay, it's swamped. And I relate it to the roads. This time of year, we've got a few cold days lately. We'll all start complaining about the potholes in the roads. Do you know why? When the Romans built them, they never built them for the volume of traffic we've got now. Do you know what? Action fraud was never ever built for that volume of traffic that's taken nowadays. And that's why I support it and I really do um, empathise with them. They're trying to do the best. New contracts being let, hopefully we'll get something that's more appropriate for the volume of cases they're getting, which hopefully then will help it become a victim crime. At the moment, fraud is still seen as victimless. It's the visibility, Robert. You're right, though. It's yeah. visibility and, and awareness uh, to it as well. Um, onto onto uh, identity fraud there. Yeah. So, so what are you guys seeing then in terms of your foreign members? Are they seeing uh, just one trend going upwards then? Yeah, no, entirely. So um, identity fraud, as you will know, um, is, is on the increase dramatically. And in what space particularly? Employment. Let's look at the employment market. Let's look at the marketplace at the moment for jobs. During, we talked about lockdown already. We've talked about the pandemic. Many jobs, unfortunately, made redundant. Many people were furloughed, never gone back to those positions. And ultimately, there are many people out there that are unemployed. People are desperate for work. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing fake passports. We're seeing fake driving licenses. Not that difficult to do. People sit there and think, well, how do you do that? There's what they call novelty websites available. I can go and buy a driving license, I can go and buy a passport, I can go and buy a qualification and make out I've got a degree. I can go and buy a professional qualification and make out I'm a lawyer, whatever it might be. There's many out there, unfortunately. With all respect, in an organisation, how many people are trained to look at whether they are genuine 
fraudulently obtained genuine documents, whether they are out and out forgeries, what are they? How many people? You've got a hiring, you've got a hiring team of X amount of people with an organisation that I worked at TFL and at the time we had 30,000 people employed. A third of those were contractors and obviously hiring managers were probably about the same. They're expected to manage. It wasn't centralised. Mm. All of those hiring managers are expected to understand whether those documents are genuine or otherwise. Very easy to make a mistake. There is pieces of kit out there that you can use. There are the infrared type things and what have you that highlight it to you where, the, where you should expect to see a watermark, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at a driving license, look at a passport, look at a utility bill, mm. and then all of a sudden you've got a qualification too, you can have a whole new persona from the internet, probably cost you a couple of hundred quid at most, and I can go out and be somebody else. So I could be a convicted fraudster. I might have not have the right to work in the UK. Mm. I certainly won't have the credentials to do the job that I'm employed for because I've made out that my CV is doctored and that takes me on to a couple of points that I've seen recently um, with regards to identity fraud. And there's rumours around um, around a doctor working in A&E um, and was asked to do something, said, I can't, um, and that's not part of my role. And the guy said, oh, I thought you were qualified. And he said, I am, but not to that level. Could you send me your CV, please? Which he did. Sure enough, the guy hadn't lied. He was telling the truth. But the agency, if you excuse the pun, they doctored his CV made him better than what he was. So he received the same amount of money, but obviously the agency have put him in a higher level and paying the high, they received in a higher volume. That's the kind of thing that we're seeing. And we've all seen it on time and time again, people getting jobs. If you heard the one, I was telling uh, people just beforehand, I did a podcast for Reed Recruitment, Vetting and Screening um, for the Reed Group. And we were talking about this. It's just amazing with regards to how identity fraud has come on and what people are doing, the lengths people go to to try and defraud you. So, and it's all about data. That's all people are interested in now. The darknet, you talked about online, Jimmy, earlier. And ultimately, the darknet is where you can sell all of that data. And it goes out to sucker lists. We hear of our grandparents or our parents being phoned, emailed, text, whatever, day in, day out. Unfortunately, they're on one of those sucker lists. The people get the data, they get paid for the data, stick it on the internet, on the dark web, and ultimately it just gets sold on and on. So there's a lady I know of who was uh, responded to uh, an advert on LinkedIn for a vacancy. Response to the advert, thanks very much indeed. Can, uh, we would like to speak to you. Can we have a telephone interview? Yep, great. First stage, telephone interview. Second stage, Zoom. Third stage, a personal interview in a coffee shop. Can't be arguing with this. Yeah, sounds legit. Sounds good. Sounds all good. It's a legitimate advert. Right the way through, kind of all felt right. <laughs> After the third interview, gets a congratulatory letter, an offer, and a contract. Obviously requesting personal details to prove the right to work and bank account details she could be paid. Never heard another word after that. No position. The address didn't exist. The company's genuine. And they just basically forge the company header, put it on emails, put it in letters. The people meeting her in a coffee shop probably was all a personal kind of interview. It wasn't anything, this is the large stage. Just want to make sure you're the right fit. And ultimately that person, social engineering as we call it, they've socially engineered that individual right the way through. But all that's for is for her personal details and her bank account details. It's crazy, right? That's, yeah. that's how sophisticated it's gone there. It's simulating a normal process where people 
don't get suspicious at, no. at that stage. And why would you? Why would you get suspicious in that lady's defence? It's the same thing, isn't it? The victims are fraud. They feel daft. They feel silly. They feel... But when you hear stories like that, that could be any of us. No disrespect. It could be absolutely anybody suffering from that because there's nothing to disbelieve. That was a normal process you'd expect. And I just feel for people now because you can't... Don't get me wrong. There were some red flags, obviously, in all types of fraud. And they might have been in that with regards to the emails. If you right-click on it and see where it's really from, et cetera, et cetera. But I also feel that we have to have some sympathy for victims. It's all far too easy to criticise. And actually, as you just said, Jimmy, is a whole persona was very, very real, very, very realistic, very, very genuine. Why wouldn't she believe it? And you've got to remember, desperate times will call for desperate measures. This poor lady's been out of work for 18 months. She wants a job. She's just happy roof to over your head. Yeah. yeah, roof over your head, feed a family, whatever it might be. Um, you can see how people fall into this. So whatever the fraud might be, I'm not somebody who will sit there criticising the victim because I, I do sympathise, I do empathise with them. Um, and all it's about now is data. It's a little bit like when you're burgled, isn't it, in this day and age? Don't worry about whether your TV's there or your, um, your skybox or whatever. Nobody's interested. Look for your passport, your driving licence and any utility bills. That's all they're interested in, unless you've got a load of antiques and jewellery, and that's a whole different world. But generally speaking, obviously, that's what we'd expect to be concerned with. Well, we've seen from our research as well, Robert, I don't know if you can uh, empathise with this as well, is fraudsters know this. They understand that people are desperate. So it's, um, it's, it's really callous, the zeroing in on the kind of emotive element. And that we're seeing that's the most successful types of fraud when they're capitalising on desperation on emotion and um, because that's where people start um maybe applying a bit of blinders to a situation and they they, they only want the outcome uh, you know which is maybe that job process etc of course we're back to cressy's fraud triangle around motivation rationalization opportunity and ultimately as you say the fraudsters know that look before the pandemic i think they were a step ahead i think they're probably a step and a half to ahead now because it's just created many many opportunities to create fraud Let's look at the, the PPE that we talked about earlier. Actually, everybody was desperate for PPE. Fraudsters realised that, well, there's a, there's a path for us to follow. We can easily get into that path, tell people we can get it, take their money up front or whatever, and then nothing ever is produced. Or we can get it, but actually it's not fit for purpose. It doesn't actually stop anything um, from the gloves through to the mask, through to whatever else it might be. And this is exactly the same, and all frauds are the same. Look at the rationalisation for the fraudsters. The greed and the need. The, the greed and the need is obviously they start small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and greedier and greedier and greedier. And I know a, I know a guy that was convicted of fraud, uh, worked in a large professional services firm, uh, worked in accounts payable, accounts receivable, didn't like the fact that he had complete autonomy over the whole process, raised it in the early days to say, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I don't like the way this is. I shouldn't have that autonomy. Um, I feel very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, we know, always, and I sympathise, always, always, accounts payable is, uh, there's a wad outstanding and somebody been off ill, you just need to get rid of that backlog. Get rid of the backlog and we can move on. So he gets rid of the backlog, raises it, yeah, we know, we know, we need to get somebody new in, we'll sort it. Cut a long story short, 18 months through that period of time, he realised that actually, this is wrong. I'm seeing invoices go through for courier firms, for taxis, for chauffeurs, whatever it might be. And they're spending a lot of money here. And I'm sending these out. And I've raised it and nobody wants to listen to me. Do you know what? I'm going to set up some invoices. 
and create some invoices and see whether they get paid. So we start small, all paid. I hastened to add, they were also paid into the same account that his wages were paid into. <laughs> so it wasn't the most convoluted of all, <laughs> really quite basic. Anyway, after 18 months, he got 250,000 quid. And do you know the ironic thing? The company was still unaware. It only raised a suspicious activity report because of the volume of money going through his account. The police arrest him, the company are unaware. <laughs> when they arrest him that morning, and he gets asked a question in the interview, why did you do it? Because I could. Because I could. And that's the fraudster. Back to your point, Jimmy. The fraudsters are there because they could. The interesting point in that story is how much money did he have left at the end of that 18 months when he was arrested? 250 grand. He said, I lived in East London. I couldn't spend the money. It would stand out like a sore thumb. And I did it because I could. Didn't stop him getting three years at Her Majesty's Pleasure, quite rightly, in my opinion. But actually, there's the point of it. We give them the opportunity. Their rationalisation will always be there because that somebody will make something up. And quite often, it's seen that you're a large firm. Mm. And actually, you won't miss that few quid, will you? These individuals, particularly during the pandemic, have got um, very much addictions, whatever it might be. And during the pandemic, it's online gambling. has gone through the roof. People are sat at home, nothing better to do. Then all of a sudden, that gambling debt becomes too great and they need to get money to cover it. And unfortunately, they're prepared to commit fraud to me to do it. And they don't care at what length, how they go about it, they will do whatever it takes. So they start small, they get greedy, and that's the need. And the need and the greed of a fraudster, as you've just alluded to, is the paramount foundation of why we are where we are. And more people are getting involved in it. Financial crisis, every single time that we have financial crisis 2008, you will see fraud go through the roof. We're on the verge of that again, aren't we? And ultimately, that's why fraud is the crime of choice as we sit here today. Yeah, as noted by the UK government, right? It's at national epidemic risk levels. It's never before seen, um, as you said. I'm interested also, if you were to classify the typology of the fraudster, you certainly get um, these, uh, if you like, accidental fraudsters because they could, absolutely. exactly. And that's situational for sure. On the other side, the most extreme, the kind of professional criminal rings. With the London Fraud Forum, have you guys come into much of that? Yeah, so my day job and um, through the London Fraud Forum and just obviously being in and around it, Jimmy, there are two sides to it. The oblivious insider, as we call it, as you alluded to, totally oblivious to the fact that what they're doing, um, not really doing it for any purpose, through to gangs on the outside that are actually targeting organisations to get staff in there. Go and steal the data. Data is the big thing. Get as much data as you can. That's what's worth the money to us. And they go around as little groups. So in a contact center, for instance, they go around. Yeah, I've got a couple of mates who do this too. Yeah, brilliant. We just need people. You know, it's like contact centers and all of a sudden we've got more and more. So yeah, I've got a couple of mates. They'll come help me. They can do this work. We all worked together before. And all they're doing is harvesting that data. Harvest that data. Harvest that data. Get it on that dark net and sell it. That's then when it becomes the bigger piece and it becomes serious organised crime. But equally, fraud. Fraud per se is part of a bigger picture and it's a serious organised crime picture. To undertake serious organised crime, whatever it may be, from human trafficking through to um, sex trafficking through to drugs, you need money. And that money is to support those teams is via fraud and money laundering, as we all know. That's what it's for. That supports the bigger crime. So fraud is at the forefront of it. And then unfortunately, it's what else happens further down the line. And I appreciate 
that's a lot more serious impact on both society and individuals. But the fraudsters are all involved in that in the same way. And I agree with you. That's exactly where it comes from. Um, it's really quite sad to see. Yeah, it's a really it's a really grim picture that uh, yeah. is being painted from this. Um, so on the other side of the fence, what, what are the private institutions, financial institutions talking about that they can do better to level the playing field? Because you can't rely on, as you, as you mentioned, police forces to kind no. of arrest every single person, especially when this is becoming increasingly a borderless crime, right? It, jurisdictions are hard to mandate who has control. Um, so what, what are some of the kind of discussion topics in that forum? Uh, of course, and we know you, it's interesting you say borderless because the moment a fraud takes place, that money is dispersed to countries we have no jurisdiction over and the money's lost and gone. And that's the sad point of it. Individuals, so you look at investment frauds, whatever it might be, preying on the elderly who have invested all their life or whatever it might be. And actually, yeah, I'm used to using that company. I'm used to using that investor. And before you know it, they've just invested in, um, I've seen the investment around strips of land along the side of the M motorways and people buying that as an investment, things of that nature. So that's really sad. From a financial services point of view, from what are we trying to do? We're back, aren't we? We can't investigate our way out of this, can't arrest our way out of this. It's around prevention, deterrence and deter. We have to prevent, detect and deter fraud. So what can we do about prevention? Awareness and education is the biggest piece. Anyone who tells you we have no fraud in our organisation, the first question is, how much awareness and education do you do? How can you expect someone to report fraud if they don't even understand what it is? Mm. But how often do we hear it? How often do we still see it? And this leads into me around culture, behaviour, and consequences of those behaviours in an organisation. And the insider threat is real. People getting themselves in these organisations to commit fraud. The minute you employ people, you know this as a startup, and that's no disrespect to anyone working for you now, your biggest risk is the staff, employees. And that's the same throughout. However established you are, startup you are, wherever you are, employees are your biggest risk. They then target you, as we've already alluded to. So what can we do? We need to make sure we get our internal control mechanisms right. We need to ensure that we, through our um, due diligence, through our supply chain, for our customers, for our staff, get that right. So all of a sudden, we're deterring it at the input. We can't allow people to make step foot through our business and then commit fraud. You have to be harsh at that early stage. And I appreciate desperate times call for desperate measures. People want the jobs. You want people in because your business has just gone through the roof and you're busy because you're an e-commerce organisation, for instance. But actually, take the time to do that properly. Agencies, for instance, no disrespect to them. They're only interested in getting bums on seats because they get paid for the staff from that day on. They're not necessarily going to do those checks as strongly as you may and as more due diligence as you may, and as robust and strong. So that's first of all. And then we look at continuous monitoring between the P2P situation, something I feel strongly about, procure to pay throughout your whole organisation. And what do we do about onboarding of organisations of suppliers? It's the same thing. It's no different to staff. You have to do those checks to make sure that you are working with and employing who you think you are. And there's some real simple checks around that as a takeaway. And it's really basic, but this is for me, fundamental, and with the case I just relayed, if that organisation had done a check on postcode and bank account details of that staff member versus their supply chain, they would have realised that it's actually being paid into the same bank account. Yeah, it's back to that example you talked about, yeah, right? exactly that, Jimmy. It's simple, it's basic. And you kick yourself and you're a bit red and you're hiding away afterwards. Do you know what? We don't say these things for the good of our health. We say it because it matters. Investigation is too late. We haven't done our job if we've got to investigate a case. 
Yes, there'll always be people out there who are one step ahead, two steps, three steps ahead of us, a little bit more clever than us, a little bit more kind of creative than us on how to commit fraud. But when you actually unwind a fraud, it was always referred to me like a fraud is like a, a jumper your grandma knitted for you. And if you pull at the bottom, you end up with a ball of warm at the beginning. And ultimately, that's what you've got to do. When you do that, you realise that actually we've been fundamentally neglectful during this process. And actually, we've helped that situation, which then becomes a bit of a difficult scenario in court because you haven't helped yourselves. You've put that position, that person, those people in that position, and you've become a victim. I don't think the court looked very favourably from my experience on you. You've got to help yourselves, guys. And that's why, however long it takes, however destructive it is to your business and your organisation, carry out that due diligence, whether it be a customer, whether it be a supplier, or whether it be an employee. That's really good takeaways. And we've always seen uh, as well on the merchant facing side, there is that um, psychology that fraud is kind of wrapped in a little bit of, um, uh, there's a bit of embarrassment, there's a bit of shame associated with it as well. And being able to balance for most of the businesses we help, for instance, they're high growth, they're online, and they have the balance, the tricky balance of against revenue. That's kind of what they yeah, mainly said. Yeah. So, so you get the CEO, the, the kind of the C team kind of wanting their business to grow, but you have the fraud team almost a little bit in direct opposition to that at, at times. And it's a really tricky balance psychology wise, right? To be yeah. preventing the growth of a business, uh, let alone when you pull at the kind of thread and back to that ball analogy. And you find out, oh, crikey, we could have done X, Y, and Z. And it's a little bit of a red face situation of, oh, this wasn't as complex, but we should have done this. How do you kind of balance, do you think, almost the psychology of fraud and people that have, if you like, been exploited because of it? Because that's, that's at the heart of, I think, the trickiness of a lot of fraud fighting. There's two sides to this, isn't there, as you rightly say, Jimmy. There's the organisation itself, um, and they feel a bit guilty. They have a bad debt provision nowadays, and they're happy just to write it off as a bad debt provision. Well, actually, that bad debt provision is just growing and growing. And it will get to the stage where the board shareholders are asking questions. You can't allow that to continue. So from a fraud side of it, I think it's respected that actually you're doing the job you are trying to. But I accept you are basically putting a block on business and stopping money coming into that business and that organization. But when you're weighing that up, and this leads me into senior leadership team, executive leadership team, you're weighing that up versus, and you just alluded to it then, the embarrassment, the awkwardness that you've been the victim of fraud. Do you know what? There is a positive to turn around in that when you've been a victim of fraud. There really is. And yes, it's not an easy conversation to have in the first place. But ultimately, you've got shareholders, you've got employees. Some of those might have to go, those employees. The shares are going to drop dramatically. All because you didn't necessarily do what you should have done at the due diligence point early on. So all of a sudden, you've become a victim of fraud. I've now got staff that potentially I've got to lay off. I've now got to explain to shareholders that, by the way, our shares are going to plummet because we've just been the victim of a large fraud. What's easier? Surely, surely it's easier to get that right culture, right behaviour, and get everybody looking for fraud and respecting what you're trying to do. But it doesn't always happen. It's the tone at the top. The top man in those or lady in those organisations needs to take that responsibility. And that responsibility is to try and iron out fraud and minimise the risk. I'm not saying you could do it overnight. Let's take what we're talking about now. So you've got an insider becomes a creates a, a fraud. They've targeted you, they're an employee, they've done a fraud. How often do we hear, actually, they don't even get prosecuted? 
they might get dismissed. It's all done very quietly out of a backfire door somewhere, and off they go. What message does that send out to other people? I might as well keep it fraud here, because all I'm going to do is get shown the fire door and I go. No one's pursuing me for the money. I've not got the threat of standing up in front of court. I'm not going to get a bad a bad reference because they've just answered me out of the way. I'm seen as a, a proverbial pain in the rear. That's all. Is that right? That can't be right, Jimmy. You've got to take action. And the message that sends internally, back to my point about behaviour and culture, the message that sends is strong, really strong. And you would see, and this is proven, your fraud risks and your fraud levels will rocket if you actually do something about it. Name and shame the fact that you've seen what's happened internally. You don't have to sell the world, I accept that. Name and shame them internally. Yes, we're going to prosecute. Yes, we're looking to, to recover the money. Some organisations still let them walk out with their last pay salary. Come on, guys, they owe you fortunes through fraud, but you're happy to do it. But that behaviour, that culture, and then those consequences of that behaviour or culture has such an impact on you as an organisation. Turn it on its head, look at it from a positive, and actually what you're doing is sending out the right message to both your shareholders, the public, and your employees. Please don't just accept it and just accept that actually we'll usher that under the carpet and hopefully nobody will look at us because it will come back to bite you on the backside. Yeah, amazing, amazing takeaway. Um, Rob, I want to switch the angle slightly. I'm interested also. So you've had, um, you're the chair um, of uh, London Fraud Forum. Uh, you are also uh, kind of deep with uh, the kind of forensics and investigation stage at PKF as well. And then pre that, TFL for, I think, a decade. Yeah, that's uh, right. On, yeah, on yeah. that side. And then pre Tenon for a decent uh, tenure. And then Watford Borough Council for yeah. uh, 20 odd years. What, what got you started in fraud fighting? I, I'm curious more from the origin point. I woke up one morning, Jimmy, and said, I know what I want to do. I want to do the right thing and be a fraud. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. That would be just pure lies, guys. Um, what did I do? I worked in a local authority at the time, 20 odd years ago now, and um, I was a recovery officer. I was a certified bailiff. And one day the head of revenues and uh, came in and said, right, you're no longer going to be bailiffs. We can outsource the, the bailiff work um, and get it done a lot cheaper. So all of a sudden there's a team, our jaws hit the desk quicker than quick. But don't worry, we're going to get you all qualified as fraud and you're going to be the fraud team. So you're sitting there thinking, well, how does this work then? So I've gone from being a bailiff, going out and basically uh, taking cars at the crack of dawn and all things of this nature, <laughs> to all of a sudden I've gone the other side and I'm going to be working in fraud. Well, that's exactly what happened. We all got qualified, we all got trained up, and the rest, as they say, is history. Our 20-odd year old career, um, where I'm extremely proud to be working for PKFGM for the last three years. Um, top 10 chartered accountancy practice, um, getting bigger and bigger, um, our credentials are getting more and more, both within public sector and private sector, the work we're winning. Um, and we're really making a difference in the fraud world. Prior to then, 10 years at TFL, probably was too long if I'm really honest, but circumstances uh, dictated how long I spent there. Um, but what an organisation to work mm -hmm. for. I absolutely loved my time at TFL. Everyone thinks all you do is oyster fraud. Well, there was a revenue teams, and they do a great job, by the way, the revenue inspectors. They do a great job stopping people um, with the wrong tickets, with the wrong oyster, whatever it might be. And we dealt with commercial corporate fraud. And it was never two days the same. Really exciting. Um, loved every minute of it. Just got to the stage where I just wanted a bit more and just a little bit different to get back into the consulting world, which I did prior to TFL for five years at what's morphed into RSM as we know it now. But at the time was a little firm called Bentley Jenison. And I loved that time. But my family were young and I needed to be home every night rather than living out of a suitcase married to a laptop. 
So all of a sudden I spent 10 years at TFL where I knew I was going to be home every night. Went down with all with the wife anyway, that's all that mattered. And here we are now, um, I'm back in that world and I'm absolutely loving every minute of it. Um, it's so exciting, no two days are the same. Forensics is obviously a new string to my bow. Um, got a great team behind me. Uh, big shout out to Alan Boothby taking it on and doing a really good job with it. Uh, XGT spent five years on to comment at the SFO. So we got a really good team behind us of both fraud investigators and forensic accountants uh, and really making a difference. And at the moment, that's what we need. We need more and more of us making a difference because as you just said, we can't all do it alone. The more of us, that, all, more hands to the pump, uh, make light work and we're getting there slowly but surely but there's a long way to go yeah fasc fascinating history there and the deep experience comes across loud and clear robert uh, which is amazing <laughs> very odd situation and scenario to start with um a little bit jaw dropping but actually it all worked out for the best and i'm uh, eternally grateful and what a career I'm. I, I think of robert like even back to you know your bailiff days what a study front line in human psychology though and let me tell you a lovely story of being a bailiff as an italian restaurant uh, very popular, but unfortunately he hadn't paid his dues with regards to business rates. And we, we only took cars. I think I'd people's houses and take jewellery and all that kind of thing. We just took cars because it was easy. And we put the clamp on the car very early in the morning, knock on the door and let him know that he hasn't paid it. He's had all the warnings in the world. Um, with that, um, this guy comes out of the restaurant with a car battery and proceeds to throw it through every single window of his own car. Well, if I'm not having it, then nobody else is going to have it type attitude as the lorry pulls up and it's being towed up on the back. He's still throwing it through, shouting and screaming. The police get called for breach of the peace, whatever. He calms down. He was okay. The irony, he obviously loved that car more than he let on. Turns up at the auction and he bought it back. <laughs> That's probably my, probably my uh, lightest moment where obviously there were some horrible scenarios and scenes and what have you being a bailiff. But actually, that was the one that always comes to mind, in, although it's probably 25 years ago or so. And it always makes me smile even to this day, bless him. He got that car back, he repaired all the windows and whatever and did it all up. Yeah, fantastic story. But yeah, no, it was good fun being a bailiff at the time. I must admit, I did enjoy it. Brilliant. Um, so we call uh, our podcast the Cat and Mouse Podcast, uh, Robert. So I'm always interested in our guests in the world of fraud fighter versus uh, professional fraudster. Who is the cat and who's the mouse and, and why, in your opinion? If it's like Tom and Jerry, and let's be honest, the mouse always gets away, doesn't he? The fraudster gets away. I'm two steps behind trying to catch them. Yes, we'll catch some. We're not going to catch every mouse. If only it was as easy as putting a lump of cheese down, Jimmy. Eh? <laughs> but it isn't. It's much more difficult as we've just discussed. And ultimately, the fraudsters are one step ahead because, as we talked earlier, the opportunities are being given to them. And we just need to detect, deter, prevent internal control mechanisms to make it more difficult. I consider myself to be the cat, a little bit rotund, chasing after this little fleeced mouse who's a lot quicker than I and they are ahead of us. We are catching up with them slowly. We are getting them. And hopefully as time goes by, we'll get closer and closer and we'll be able to actually nullify some of this serious organized crime that's connected to fraud. But the problem is they'll find something else. And that's exactly what, as we've just alluded to, throughout the whole COVID thing, it just created so many opportunities for the fraudsters. Now we're on top of it, there'll be something else. But at the moment, I feel like we're kind of not leveled by any means, but we're on a catch up again, back to where we were prior to the pandemic. But obviously that mouse always gets away. Robert, this has been a fascinating conversation. For our audience uh, that are wanting to find out more about organization, where would you point them towards? 
for fraud and London Fraud Forum, www.londonfraudforum.co.uk. Um, I'm also a board member of something called UKIFA, United Kingdom Identity Fraud Advisory, www.ukifa.co.uk. Everything on there, whether you're a business or an individual and what to do if you're the victim of an identity fraud. The reason being, it's about repairing your identity. You contact Experian, you contact Equifax, you contact GBG, TransUnion, Call Credit. But unfortunately, so you've now alluded to where you've been the victim of identity fraud. But what do you do? How do you repair that? How do you get back to getting credit? How do you get back to getting in a position where actually it doesn't affect you? Go on that website and we'll try and help you. London Fraud Forum, obviously, um, more than welcome. As many people as possible to become members. Even if you want to become involved with the board, please do. Please let me know. Please shout out LinkedIn, obviously Robert Brooker. And if you've got a desire to work in fraud and you want to know what qualification to take, I've got many people I help all the time and I'm more than willing to do that. If you want to get into it, you want to take the next step, you want to know where to work, what to do, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me rbrooker at pkf-l.com. Please feel free, more than willing to help people. I take great pride in developing people, seeing people go better than me, higher than me, um, and get their foot into the door. Um, I've helped a few people this year that have got their foot in the door and now are going up through the ladder. And it's just, what could be better? What could be better in seeing as many people working in fraud as we can, making a difference? As we say, we can't arrest our way out of it. We need us civilization and civil um, investigators to do as much as we can. Yeah, amazing, amazing uh, parting note there, Robert. Thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate your time there. Thank you for inviting me, Jimmy. Thanks to the guys for the filming and recording. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And if we just make 1% of difference, it's all worth it. Thank you very much indeed.